Okay, if you, if you have a Bible with you, um, please open it to John chapter 1. Uh, but we're in our Advent series, and, and we are focusing on John the Baptist, the last prophet of Israel, who also shows us how we are to respond to the coming of the Messiah, right? Like, like the way he functions in all four Gospels is he shows us Jesus. And so we are focusing through the next few weeks on who John understood Jesus to be and how he responds. Now, I'm going to tell you up front, the beginning of this is not going to be pleasant. Um, but it'll get better, I hope. All right, hear the word of God from John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be focusing on verse 29, but for context, we're going to read through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Please pray with me. God, I pray that we could see Jesus through your word right now, that we would love and know him more, that, uh, that the gospel would take root in our community, in our minds, in our hearts, in our families and homes. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, have you guys ever been, uh, like, super busted? I, I'm guessing we all have an experience of being just dead to rights, busted at some point in our lives. One of the, actually, you've never heard this story, Cher, so this is going to be new for you. One time, uh, so I used to be in a band, and we would tour around, and our first international show, I was, I was 20 years old, and we, we went to the great country of Canada, say amen. Caleb's not here to hear me. Uh, okay, we got a Canadian back there. Okay, and so we were going to an outstanding place called Calgary, and um, we had a road manager who turned out to be a total scoundrel, and you, you actually need a work visa, even if you're going to do something for free in Canada. And instead of our road manager doing his actual job and getting us work visas, he was from Australia, and I'm going to do a terrible impression of him right now. He's like, right, here's what you have to do, right? This is Wayne, oh, his name was Wayne. He always said, right, right, right. And so when we would do impressions of him, we we're like, right, here's the thing, right? Um, and so he says, right, you don't need a work visa. Scoundrel, remember? Um, all you have to do is say you're there to see a friend, and you don't have to do it. You don't have to pay the money for the visa. You just go in. Okay, so this was the plan. Against our better judgment, I'm 20 years old, going for the first time out of the country, and, and it's like this little airport with a little customs and immigration area. You know, there was only a handful of people on the plane. Imagine that. Not tons of people wanted to go to Calgary in January. And... Um, and so I was, we were seven guys traveling together, all with California driver's licenses from the same town. And by the time I was the last one to go through, and, and the agent I got was super suspicious, not buying what I'm selling. He's like, oh, you're going to see a friend, huh? What's this friend's name? I'm like, Andrew, where does he live? Calgary. Could you be more specific? Jones Street? It's like, oh, you got me, you know. No. <laughs> and, and, and clearly he's smelling the lie, and I'm just trying to, to lie more and cover my initial lie with better, more convincing lies, and it is not working. And so finally he calls my bluff. He says, okay, so here's what's going to happen. You're going to go get your bag, 
and we're going to go wait outside for your friend, Andrew, to pick you up. I'm like, okay, <laughs> right? And I'm like, what do I do? And all, uh, we go to, the, go to the carousel to get my bag, and my bag isn't on the carousel because my bandmates had taken my bag off of the carousel, and it was sitting in a pile with all of our stuff, and they were all standing around. And I was trying to tell them with my eyes, pretend like you don't know me. And our trombone player had an attack of conscience at this point and decided the jig was up. And he, he looks at me and he goes, hi, Matt. And uh, the agent turns to, me, turns to me and he turns to him and he's like, oh, you know Matt, do you? And he's like, yeah, we're in a band. We're here to play a gig. And he looks at me and he said, well, you certainly messed up. But he didn't say messed up. And he didn't say it calm like that. He actually yelled it in my face. And he grabs me and takes me back to the little, like, holding cell thing. And I got the Canadian third degree. It was brutal. This is the meanest a Canadian's ever been in world history. And he's just, he, this is going to be on your permanent record. You scummy, this and that, this and that, this and that. And, you know, if I wanted to, eh, I could totally have you face down on the, uh, don't say sorry, don't say sorry. Get, I could have you face down on a plane handcuffed with guns to the back of your dumb American head. Right, and of course in the end he just let me go with a warning because it's Canada, but like I was busted. I had broken the law. I was dead to rights. I deserved whatever came my way, you know, in, in violation of, I violated immigration law, right? I was, there, I was there to work without a work permit. Guilty, deserving the consequences. That is actually the scripture's verdict on each and every one of us. I told you this would get unpleasant quick. We are guilty of violating the law of God and deserve consequences. Romans 3.23 tells us that everyone is guilty. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What that means is that the most righteous person on planet Earth is in the same boat, just as guilty as the least. And also that we're deserving of the consequences. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages, the consequences of sin, of violating God's law, is death. Now, what do we mean by sin? That, that means falling short of God's standards. What God requires from human beings, not one of us lives up to. And I realize I'm using a old-timey word that is out of fashion in some circles, sin, right? Well, we don't like that word. But what it means is that, is that we don't live up to God's standards. And, and what people will say, can't we just like have Jesus and Christmas and all that without sin? Well, there's two reasons we can't. One, it makes total nonsense of the Christian faith. Like, what, what did Jesus do if there was no such thing as sin? You know, it, it's like taking Lord of the Rings and there's no Sauron. Like, nothing anybody does in Lord of the Rings makes any sense, sense if there is no Sauron, right? Like, oh, isn't that brave that Frodo went to Mordor? What for? There's no Sauron to deal with. In, in the, in, right? And here's the other thing. Uh, it's logically inescapable. The, the, the conclusion that we are guilty and deserving the consequences is logically inescapable. It, it, follow me for two seconds. This is going to feel like a college class for a couple minutes. I'm sorry. Without moral law, you can call nothing evil. Without moral law, you can call nothing 
evil. You're like, that sounds good. Can we just do that? Can we just say there's, you know, it's all relative. There's no such thing as moral law. Okay. But if we want to call like genocide, enslavement, colonialism, child abuse evil, you need some standard by which to judge that, correct? Or else you can call nothing evil. And, and some people take that way out. Did you ever hear a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche? He, he said that there is no good and evil, only power, which is also what Voldemort said at some point in the Harry Potter novels. Some people want to go that way because they don't want to admit to there being something called moral law. But almost all of us are going to say, you know what, clearly some things are evil, so, so we need a moral law. All right, well, here's the other thing. Without a creator God, without a God who made all things, you cannot have moral law. Well, why not? Why can't just a society decide what moral law is? Yeah, we're great at that. We all agree on morality in each society, don't we? No, we don't. Like, there is no agreement in any society. And what's more, one society disagrees with another. Who's to say who's right? And say, okay, well, well, yeah, why can't it just be relative to each society? Okay, so the, the colonial societies of, of the 1800s believed they were doing the right thing. They were acting within their definition of morality. Was it right to colonize the rest of the world? We'd have to say yes if there is no transcendent God who gives us a moral law. All right, so without moral law, you can call nothing evil. Without a creator, you can have no moral law. And without a revelation, without, this, without a God speaking, say like in Scripture, you can't receive that moral law. If there is no communication, right, we, we cannot know what the will of God is, correct? Like I always wonder, people are like, well, God is this, God is that. It's like, well, it sounds like you're just saying all the things you like and attributing them to God. How do you know that God believes these things? How do you know that 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 God is, you know, super, whatever you say he is. Like, you need, you need a way to know. Making sense? And so, you may say, well, I'm sure there's many religions in the world that claim to have a moral law from God. Like, when we look throughout history, and you'd be completely wrong. Okay? Most religions did not go to their gods for morality. When we look at like the ancient pagan religions, gods were more likely to be immoral, like Zeus running around with wood nymphs and stuff like that. Like they were not moral people. You don't go to the gods to get your morality. The only example we have of a divine law code is in the scripture. There's three faiths that come from that: the Judeo-Christian faith or Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Guess what? They all come to the same conclusion about sin. When we look at the requirements God has for us in the word, we can come to no other conclusion than that we are guilty and deserve the consequences. And, and this, is, this is something that's pretty central. This is the main problem of the Bible. And you know who knew this really well is, is our focal point, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, you have to remember, he was a priest's kid. And he grew up very, very devout. He would have known the scriptures from the time he could speak. And he would have heard about what God did for Abraham and how God delivered his people out of Egypt. And he would also see the consequences of turning away from God after David. How, how the people strayed from God and how it destroyed them. 
how they were now living in exile. This problem of sin was not purely spiritual for John the Baptist. It affected his very nation. And what he was waiting for, we are going to see is God's solution to the problem of sin. That one would come who would finally resolve this. What do we do about the fact that we want to be in relationship with God, yet we are guilty in his sight and deserving of the consequences? That seems like a really unsolvable problem. So when he sees Jesus, what does he declare in verse 29? It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the, the, it's an exclamation, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We are going to dive deep into this one sentence. What does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Well, first of all, what is the Lamb of God? Lamb is a loaded Old Testament image, okay? It's found throughout the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis 22, Abraham is supposed to sacrifice his son Isaac. God tells him, don't. Here is a substitute, a, a, a sheep as a substitute. So in that case, the sheep dies instead of Isaac. The next place we see it is in the Exodus, the Passover, the angel of death is going to pass over Egypt and strike the firstborn. But what, are the, what do God's people do? They sacrifice a lamb, they take its blood, and they put it on their house, and the angel of death passes over. You see, the, the lamb dies instead of them. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? And then we see in the sacrificial system, in the book of Leviticus, that every year on the Day of Atonement and every morning and every evening a lamb was to be offered for the sin of the people. It goes in place of the people. And then we read it earlier, the book of Isaiah has one of the great prophecies of the Messiah. That this one who would suffer, it says, I laid on him the iniquity of all. He was silent as a lamb before its shearers. And so when John is saying the lamb of God, he's referring to this very rich Old Testament image of one who dies in place of the people. He's the substitute. And what? He's the lamb of God. He's the lamb provided by God. Now, isn't that remarkable? That this God whose, whose requirements are so impossible to meet provides exactly what we need. The one, the one who is the holy judge is also the one who provides the way out. That God provides what he requires in Christ. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a sick sort of individual that enjoys triathlons. And, and once I, I, I was about to do my first Olympic distance once, pretty decent, decent distance. I trained really hard. I you know, had, to, had to get everything together. A um, lot of planning, a lot of a lot of uh, money to, to, to be able to enter in all that. And the day of the race finally came, and I was checking in, and they have to check over your gear. And the lady at the check-in desk was like, oh, you're missing a little peg in your handlebar. You know, the thing that caps the, you all know what that is. And I was like, oh, yeah, bummer. She's like, actually, you can't race without that. I was like, what? Begging your pardon? Sounded like you said I couldn't enter the race if I 
don't have a little piece of plastic in the end. She's like, yeah, that's right, sorry. I was like, oh, I was starting to walk away. And she's like, I have a whole jar of them. She pulls a jar out from underneath. And, she, and I'm like, you know what? Start with that next time. I have one of these. You're missing one of these instead of you can't. You see what I'm saying? So what was required, and I didn't have it, but what was required was provided. No, we can't live up to the moral standards of God's law. We can't do it. Not one of us. But God provides exactly what we need. We're guilty and we deserve the consequence, but God has provided us a substitute. And what does this lamb do? Well, the next thing he says is what he does. He takes away the sin of the world. He takes away sin. So sin, uh, the word used here is the, is the most general term. It's the catch-all word for sin in the New Testament and Greek. For Old Testament too, actually. Um, and there's two parts to it. There's the pollution of sin, right? The presence of sin, God cannot coexist with the presence of sin in, in the same way that a body cannot coexist with poison. It's going gonna, it's gonna to expel it, right? That, that's the idea. God is holy, can't coexist with sin. And so, so, so Jesus takes away the pollution of sin and also the penalty of sin. When you break the law, there's a consequence, Correct? A lot, a lot of the time we say, well, why can't, why can't God just forgive without holding humanity responsible for the consequences of his law? The reason is, is because he's just. He's a just and holy judge. We don't think more of a judge who, who just says, you know what, you're guilty of murder, but you know what, I'm a nice guy, I'm going to let you go. No, we call that not doing your job, right? God must hold the guilty accountable. And so when, when, when Jesus, it says that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there's a, a specific Greek word there. there. There are Greek words for remove, but this is the word airo. It means pick up and remove. The one who removes it has to take it for themselves first. This is what Jesus does with both the pollution and the consequences of sin. Where does he do this? He does this on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he takes the pollution of sin. It says that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He also takes the, the penalty of sin. The, the, the passage in Isaiah 53 is maybe the best passage for that. It says again and again, eight different ways, that the sin of the people was punished on this, this one who's to come. That he pays the penalty, that he takes the curse, that he serves, that he serves the, 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 he takes the consequences for our crime. Now, it must be said, there are some brothers in Christ who deny this particular piece, that, that, that Jesus died in our place for our sin. Um, and saying that, that like this is a late development, anybody ever heard this? That like sometime in the 1500s, this idea that Jesus died as a substitute? It, any? I think Mark gave me, okay. Okay, so for those of you who are like, well, what about that? It's untrue. 
So first of all, we looked at his text from Isaiah that says eight times he takes the sin of the people. The punishment for the people goes on him, and that's from around 600 B.C. So far from 1500 A.D., it's like, what's the math on that, 2100 years before? Is that right? I did math on the spot. That felt great. (laughs) So we see it there. We also see it clearly in the New Testament. We also see it in an ancient guy named Tertullian in the, in the fourth century, among others. And then we see it in another person named Anselm in around the year 1000. And then finally, it's also picked up in the 1500s, which is where people are making that mistake from. Did, did everybody follow that? All right, cool. I felt like I didn't do that good of a job. But all right, if you're all shaking your <laughs> nodding your heads, great. And, and so, so kind of the, the alternative view for Jesus dying for sin is that on the cross, Jesus showed his love by laying down his life. And it really doesn't make any sense. If, if, if there is no sin to die for, if there's no penalty to pay, then Jesus dying on the cross is no more loving than me showing love for my family by jumping in front of traffic on the street. Hey, guys, I'm going to show you how much I love you. Peace. Right? Like, what was it for? It was for nothing. If Jesus died for no reason, the cross is not love. Instead, on the cross, Jesus takes away both the pollution and penalty of sin. A lot of people make the mistake that the Christian faith is sort of like a, a guidebook in how to make yourself good enough to earn salvation. That's not what it is at all. The Christian faith, the gospel is not a do, it's a done. It's looking to what Jesus has done for us, not what we must do for God. Now, a relevant question is for whom did Jesus die? Because that's, that's, that's not always obvious. In most religions, there is kind of a velvet rope thing, right? Like a velvet rope, like I've, I've maybe once tried to go to a club in my life and they look at you and say, you can come in or you can't. I never get in, right? Vel- the velvet rope. You guys know what I'm talking about. Um, and, and, and a lot of religions, most religions actually function that way. If you're not from the right people group, you aren't really a part of it. You have to join the people group. Or... You have to, like, prove yourself worthy somehow of, of God's favor, right? And, and a lot of people actually see the Christian faith that way, that you, you really just have to, err, you have to prove to God you're sincere enough, you have to prove that you're good enough, and then God saves you. Or that you have to become, like, like sort of a, a moral conservative or something like that, and you have to be like smiley and polite and wear sweater vests and, and you can't make salty jokes or, or have any actual real problems and sins. You know what I'm talking about? That if, you, that if you're going to be a Christian, your sins have to be very minor, right? Nothing, nothing too big. It's really, would, one would wonder why Jesus would have to die for such minor sins as we think or, 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 or uh, would qualify us to be a Christian. And many of us actually see ourselves as disqualified. You've done things in your life that you're like, surely I can't be forgiven for that. You have current struggles that you say, maybe I don't even belong in a church right now. Some of you guys online might be feeling that way. And you're afraid to walk through the doors of a church. Some of us 
see ourselves as being from the wrong cultural group. And that to be a Christian is kind of like a, like a middle class thing. It's like a majority culture thing. It's not really my thing. It's not really my people. And it must be said that at the time of John the Baptist, the expectation was that the Messiah would be only for the Jews, that there would be kind of a velvet rope thing to it, that if you weren't a Jew, you weren't really in, that this paying for sin was for the Jews only and not for you. But what does he say, the last thing? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's completely opposite from what they would have expected. It's not just the Jews. It's every tribe, it's every tongue, it's every nation. It's not just the religious, but the non-religious. It's not the qualified, but the disqualified that Jesus died for. Jesus is for everyone. What are we to do in response? If, if Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, what does the scripture command us to do? Well, there's two places that, that the Gospel of John tells us the whole game. Okay, look with me at John 1.12 first. Right at the beginning, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So remember, the, the Gospel of John is addressed to some Jews, but mostly non-Jews. And what's the message to them? It doesn't matter that you're not Jewish. It doesn't matter that you've worshipped pagan gods your whole life. Jesus is for you. And lastly, right at the end of the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, I'm going to flip there really fast, uh, verse 31, John tells us his entire purpose. He says, but these are written, and these refers to everything he told us in the first 20 chapters, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, our response is to believe and have eternal life. And he's like, okay, so believe that mean I just like, have to be very, very moral from this point forward so that I can kind of qualify? No! It's not what it's saying. It is not what you do. It was what, it's what Christ has done. Okay, so believe like 100% of my being, right? Like I just, my faith has to be like move mountain, like awesome faith. Like, like people are going to be inspired by how much I believe this. Again, it is not the quality of your faith. All of us are half-hearted creatures. All of us are broken and so is our faith. Instead, it's the object of our faith. Jesus, right? A lot of the time we torture ourselves because you're like, okay, I feel like everyone else at church believes this 100% except me, right? If you are a person who has managed to believe the gospel 100%, please just get up here instead of me because I haven't. No one has, truly. We all struggle with unbelief. The, the, what it means to believe it is, it's not just intellectual assent. It's not just saying, I believe this is true. And I might need a cheesy illustration to, 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 to really get this point across because, you know, I'm not above a cheesy illustration if it does the trick. All right, so there was once a, uh, a, a tightrope walker at Niagara Falls, all right? And, and this dude was, like, spectacular, 
on a tightrope, back and forth, could do handstands, all the things. And a crowd gathers, as you might expect, and, and they're all cheering him on. You're the greatest tightrope walker. He's like, I am. That's true. I rule at this. That I've not even really scratched the surface of what I'm able to do. Now, who among you here believes that I could make it across the falls and back with a wheelbarrow? And everyone's like, we believe you can do it. You're the greatest. He's like, all right. And so he grabs the wheelbarrow, and no problem. They're in back like he's on a sidewalk. And he says, now who believes that I could do this with a full wheelbarrow? And they're like, we believe you can do it. And so he you know, fills the thing with sandbags or what have you, and, and, and no problem. He, he, he goes back and forth with the wheelbarrow. It's like magic. And he's like, now who believes I could do this with a person in here? And everyone's like, we believe you could do it. He's like, okay. Dumps all the sandbags out. He says, who'll get in? That's what belief is. It's not just to believe that it's true, but to, to entrust ourselves to Jesus. You may have heard this particular message. You may have heard that Jesus died for your sin, that our response is belief, not work. You may have heard this 8,000 times, but you know how many times you've forgotten it? 8,001. Just like me. You may have never heard this, and you're like, wait, this is the Christian faith? Yes, this is what the Bible actually teaches. It's not that you earn it and, and, and prove that you're, you're good enough for heaven. That's not what it's about. It is all about what Jesus has done for us, and that's why we celebrate his coming. We didn't get at Christmas, we didn't get a guide that shows us kind of the, the, the playbook for achieving eternal life. Instead, we have one that earned it for us. And our response is to say yes. It's to commit. It's to get in the wheelbarrow, so to speak. We have an opportunity to do this every single week. We call it communion. And we come to this table now. And this is an opportunity, if it's the first time or the 8,000th time, to respond to what Christ has done for us. Everyone who comes forward and by the way, you don't have to come forward. Everyone who comes forward is saying yes to what Christ has done for us on the cross. Please take a moment of silent reflection before we take this table and say yes to Jesus.